Welcome to the Notion Club podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and joining me is Stephen Williams. Stephen teaches English literature at a classical school here in Virginia. He's been my longtime interlocutor of literature and philosophy, art and education. In our first season, he and I discussed the virtue of courage through the lens of a few favorite books, among them The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, for which we both share a mutual passion. In today's discussion, Stephen and I will continue our discussion of virtues, this time talking about the virtue of fellowship, which you might say is not so much a virtue in itself, but an accumulation of the best virtues, among which are courage, loyalty and steadfastness, trust, and love. We will discuss the theology of fellowship, as well as its practical application to everyday life, while taking vibrant examples of fellowship from true stories, whether history or fairy tale. And if I may say, this discussion wouldn't be possible if not for the fact that Stephen and I both share a true fellowship, one which has emboldened us both to strive, to seek, and to find all the virtues we're about to discuss, not always succeeding, of course, but always trying, and being made to see, sometimes overwhelmingly, the goodness and beauty of human fellowship. This is episode two of season two of The Notion Club. Stephen, welcome once again to the Notion Club. It's great to be back. This is, in many senses, a continuation of our previous discussion. Uh, we talked in season one about courage, specifically how it is depicted in The Lord of the Rings, one of our favorite books. And I think as a logical progression from a discussion about courage is moving in, in many senses outward to the conditions in which courage must be molded and forged and, and found, which is in fellowship. I'm excited to explore this topic as well, for it is vital, it is essential, it is a attribute of, of human life that cannot be done away with. Without fellowship, we will wither and die. You know, Justin, last time we touched on the topic of courage and the peculiar way the enduring way even that it is portrayed by Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. And we spoke of how courage is that virtue which endures through the worst of trials, endures through fire and water, endures through causes that don't seem to have a lot of hope. And so it makes sense that perhaps this time we might spend a few minutes discussing uh, a virtue that is closely akin to courage, or at least an essential element of the preservation of that courage, the inspiration of that courage, uh, and that is the the virtue, as it were, of fellowship. Um, and this is something that we find throughout Tolkien, of course. And when you think of Tolkien specifically, you are 
immediately directed in your mind to the Fellowship of the Ring. But as we see that fellowship, which over the course of the story itself, the, the nine walkers are only together for about two months uh, before they are sundered first at Moria uh, and then secondly, above the falls of Rauros. And it is a very interesting thing to note, however, that the bonds of fellowship forged over the course of those two months are exactly what carries them through the next weeks, though they are often very far apart from each other. And I think it makes sense that if, as we discussed, the telos of courage is endurance, it's not overthrow, it's not revolution, yes. but endurance in the face of trial. Fellowship is similarly, the, the telos of fellowship is also in endurance mm. together. And probably the greatest means of endurance and of perseverance is through fellowship. Fellowship, I think, is where all of the virtues, all of the great virtues that we could talk about, finds its expression and and also finds its catalyst you know you mentioned this and i'm, I'm thinking back to the time that i spent in hebrews 12 earlier mm. uh, this week um, i was in the process of writing a letter to a student and i was going back to the hall of faith chapter mm -hmm. uh, and then what succeeds it in hebrews 12 and as the writer of hebrews talks about all of these members of the cloud of witnesses um, he continues in chapter 12 after, after saying, lay aside every weight that ensnares you, run your race. And then he comes around and he says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. Mm -hmm. And this is a uh, remarkable observation on his part. And the interesting thing about, about the book of Hebrews is that the author sets out the story of redemption for the reader. He speaks of Christ spilling better blood than that of Abel, mm -hmm. of being the great high priest whom Israel had never had. And the emphasis of the writer of Hebrews is upon Christ as the one who has done the work for the Christian, mm. the one who has stood in the Christian's place, the one who has protected him from the consuming fire of the Father, mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. Christ is the one who has done the work, but what is the author of Hebrews' message to the Christian? It is endure. Mm -hmm. Christ has done the work, you must endure. And so I find this very interesting parallel between those dual emphases in, in the book of Hebrews and the Lord of the Rings, because the, the message to the fellowship of the ring in many cases is endure. Mm -hmm. The message to Sam and Frodo is endure. At the end of the day, I mean, this is a spoiler alert, but it is not Frodo who casts the ring into the fire. Yeah. Frodo is unable mm -hmm. to do so of his own strength. He must be acted upon by an outside providential force mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that his ring falls into the the crack of doom. But But the enduring message is Frodo and Sam have to endure the trip to Mount Doom. Mm -hmm. Aragorn has to endure the road to the paths of the dead. And isn't it interesting that if we're drawing this parallel between the story of Frodo and Hebrews 12, that after that entire journey of endurance, Frodo was not able to cast aside the encumbrance of the ring. No. no. And when you get, as it were, to the cross of Calvary, that you cannot, of your own volition, 
throw off your burden that it takes as you said an outside providential force Mm -hmm. of grace to intervene for you Mm -hmm. that's the point that's why christ is the end of our race yes but what's interesting here is that not only must we be acted upon by some outside source to accomplish the the ultimate deed Mm -hmm. in our case Mm -hmm. our salvation and sanctification Mm -hmm. and glorification but in the case of you know frodo and sam to make sure that the ring is cast into the fire we also must be acted upon by outside sources Mm -hmm. to accomplish what is our task yeah which is enduring. Mm-hmm. We have great need of the presence of others mm-hmm. in our lives in in very specific ways, unite around specific principles, forged together with a kind of unassailable fidelity. <laughs> that is the way by which we endure. And, you know, for the, the Christian, we see this. This is given to us in the gift of the church. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking about the church as the the perfect picture of unity. If we think of another Pauline epistle, Ephesians, that, you know, Ephesians is possibly most famous for its culminating chapter of the armor of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Put on the armor of God and go to battle. And that would fit very nicely in our previous discussion about courage, taking up the armor of God and, and going to battle. But Ephesians, the great idea of Ephesians is unity in fellowship in the Mm. body. And that culminating conclusion to put on your armor and go to war comes at the end of five previous chapters about the unity of the Mm. body, probably at its clearest point in chapters four and five. Four being about all of the diversity (laughs) of the members of the body, each of whom have a specific gift and a specific role and vocation Mm -hmm. in which they must exercise the kind of courage that we talked about. Self-forgetting courage that is diligent to, to accomplish its job, but also depends on everyone else in the body to come alongside them and help them with their own gifts and their own vocations. And then we see this played out more intimately in chapter five with the fellowship and unity of a man and wife Mm -hmm. of marriage and how how this uh, is most clearly seen in the in the fellowship of christ and the church yes and this self-same sacramental reality being expressed in a man and a wife and then in at the beginning of chapter six it's this fellowship of uh a child and his parents Mm. expressed in the honor of that child for his parents in obedience Um, and also the fellowship of a father with his child to love them and not exasperate them Mm. you know only after all of these chapters on the unity of fellowship do you come to putting on your armor and going to war the Mm. underlying assumption of all of that being you have brothers standing by you. Yes. Yeah, I've never quite put all that together with Ephesians. That's a, a brilliant observation. It is the realization of one Lord, one faith, one baptism uh, that uh, you might look at your wife, mm-hmm. which is a new reality for me since yeah. the last time we talked. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. You look at your wife, you look at your parents, you look at your children, mm-hmm. you look at Uh, those in the pews next to you and you are in the constant process of actualizing the reality of being uh, under one lord uh, one faith one baptism Mm -hmm. so paul's 
implication there is that this fellowship is there to guard you. It is there to protect you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, I, uh, in the course of my teaching right now, I am uh, just completed a unit with, with my eighth graders about Anglo-Saxon England. <laughs> and in the process of trying to communicate... I'm so jealous of that, it's not even... Funny. I know, I know. <laughs> um, in the process of trying to communicate to them... Uh, some of the elements of the culture at the time, I discussed with them the order of battle that mm-hmm. was a staple of, of not just the Anglo-Saxon world, but much of, of early medieval Europe. And it was the, the formation of the shield wall in which one, one man would lock his shield with the guy next to him and on and on across the line. And the way the battles would be fought would be that, that your shield wall and your enemy's shield wall would, would draw up together. Mm-hmm. And you would clash in the middle, mm-hmm. and victory would often go to the one who breaks first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that there was uh, a type of dependence mm-hmm. that you had to give to your uh, man on your right, your man on your left. With the shield wall, the most important thing was not not dying. It was making sure that any holes in the wall were quickly filled. Mm -hmm. And so the most dangerous thing that could happen to uh, a shield wall was not a man dying, but a man running. Mm -hmm. Um, And once a crack was made in the the wall, then uh, it could be exploited. And so I was explaining this to my students. And it seems to me that, you know, this is the the implication of Ephesians 6, too. Mm -hmm. If you look back at the rest of the book, that there is a kind of dependency that must exist between you and your fellow Christians, wherein their shield is overlapping with yours to quench the fiery arrows of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And you must be able to depend on your brother mm-hmm. to to catch those arrows which you cannot get to. Mm-hmm. This is what we see throughout The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps one of the things that I, I appreciate the most about the element of fellowship within Tolkien is that at least in The Lord of the Rings, there isn't a single sacrifice of life, but there are multiple ones that are bolstered by smaller sacrifices. Gandalf, with his fall at Khazad-dûm, mm-hmm. is something of a sacrifice and taking the, the rage of the Balrog with him. Mm-hmm. Boromir's sacrifice at uh, Amon Hin is a way of trying to protect Merry and Pippin. But uh, the the story does not culminate in a, a single sacrifice, but it is a, an amalgamation of sacrifices, mm-hmm. um, sometimes with one's life, sometimes with one's better wishes. It's interesting that you're talking about the different kinds of sacrifices that each of the members of the Fellowship of the Ring have to make in order to progress the journey. It's not only their particular giftedness, Mm -hmm. it's their individual sacrifice, Gandalf's sacrifice, Boromir's sacrifice, and Aragorn's sacrifice Mm -hmm. that is necessary for the unity of the fellowship. That the fellowship would have broken if Gandalf had not made the sacrifice. Right. And when we think about any kind of fellowship, Self-sacrifice is a necessary element for unity that each member of a fellowship must be acting specifically in their gifting and in their vocation must be doing that in a mode of Mm self-sacrifice because it is not self-fulfillment. What is striking to me is that, you know, the the last chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring is called the breaking of the fellowship. Mm -hmm. But if you keep reading, the the fellowship becomes broken in terms of its 
local proximity to each other, mm-hmm. but it does not become broken in its love mm-hmm. for one another. Yeah. Um, and we see this in how the eyes of, of Gandalf, of Aragorn, Legolas Gimli, Marion Pippin, they're always casting their eyes to the east. I wonder how Frodo's doing. Mm-hmm. I hope Frodo's still alive. Mm-hmm. They are turned then to, to the members of, of the fellowship that they do find themselves with. They preserve their, their bonds of fidelity throughout the course of the, the book, uh, the, the next two books, such that, you know, once, once Aragorn is crowned king and the, the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor are united, the goodbye then at that point, uh, as, as Aragorn is, I think, seated on a horse on a hill at sunset and he waves goodbye to Merry and Pippin and to Frodo and Sam mm-hmm. and others, this is immensely poignant. Mm. So the the bonds of fellowship begun on their journey as nine walkers endure through the rest of the story uh, in absentia. Mm. Their thoughts are always with one another. Mm-hmm. And they seem to turn to their own tasks. First, whether it was chasing Merry and Pippin and the Urukai all the way across the plains of Rohan for Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. They are constantly turning themselves to the task at hand for the sake of the others who are doing their own task, following their own vocations, mm-hmm. the paths that have been laid out for them. Mm-hmm. And they find a, a kind of vigor and, and, and purpose in what it is that they've been called to do because they know that they are playing a part, a role in a larger story mm-hmm. that affects their 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 brothers on the other side of Mordor in this case. Yeah. So it seems apparent that in any fellowship, and I, I would make this observation, that fellowship is sharpest when you see it in, in a band of brothers in arms who are committed to each other toward an end which is outside themselves. Mm-hmm. That if fellowship simply means what it has come to mean, an American evangelicalism, which is basically, you know, the social gathering. Right. And you, you know, it's it's a pretty superficial gathering. Mm-hmm. And and everything that it that attends a kind of social fellowship, mm-hmm. we, we associate with ideas of peace, that the way we practice fellowship is in peace, in peacetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But fellowship is sharpest not in peacetime, mm-hmm. but in in wartime. Yeah. And in fact, the purpose of fellowship is to be a band of brothers in the state of reality, which Mm -hmm. is warfare. When we come to the end of Ephesians, the the beginning of the end, chapter 6, we are told that the state of reality is one of warfare. It is a war of the principalities, of the powers of the air. It is a spiritual warfare. That is the reality in which we find ourselves, that is the point of fellowship. That's the point of every fellowship. That is, in fact, the point of marriage. Mm -hmm. And if we think that fellowship is best expressed in times of peace, we are deluding ourselves as to the nature of reality Mm -hmm. as much as we are as to the nature of fellowship. It's interesting to me that perhaps the most common conception of fellowship, maybe this is a bit pejorative, but it's hang time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hanging out. One could be doing the exact same activities with other people, mm-hmm. and and they have in two entirely different ends. That as Christians, we are tasked with fighting a spiritual war, mm-hmm. and that 
uh, elements of fighting that spiritual war, of course, are the easy ones, the, the, the praying, the, the scripture study, the arming yourself with you know, the armor of God. Mm-hmm. But there is also a celebratory nature to our war mm-hmm. in which hang time can be sanctified. Yeah. You know, yeah. it is a, a way of pushing back the shadow mm-hmm. can be having ridiculous amounts of fun and yeah. laughter right. with one another. Yep. Um, but it has to be contextualized properly. Right. It cannot be left without uh, without a purpose, without an end. Mm-hmm. And so it is absolutely necessary that we learn to hang well with one another, mm-hmm. to, to have times of fellowship that are not necessarily serious in nature, that are not necessarily for the purpose of actively fighting a war in, in the most martial of attitudes. Right. But a recognition that because we do not war against powers of, of flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but against the powers and principalities and principality in the air, etc., yeah. yep. that that our warfare is sometimes manifested <laughs> by laughter. Yes. Um by by joviality, yep. as it were. Yep. And so what is necessary then to contextualize is an understanding the story that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, what is necessary is realizing that our lives together will be filled with all kinds of different moments of fellowship. Mm-hmm. There will be moments of fellowship and grief. There'll mm-hmm. be moments of fellowship and joy. Mm-hmm. There'll be moments of fellowship where you're just gritting your teeth and enduring whatever trial or tribulation is at hand together mm-hmm. but again the point is is endurance mm-hmm. and part of the way that we endure is laughter part of the way we endure is prayer so it's important to realize that in some senses the nature of our fellowship needs to be changed not necessarily in terms of merely its activities right but in the the teleology yeah <laughs> the end for which the fellowship is is formed right and that's the thing. I mean, this is not at all to say stop hanging out no. you know, or stop having fun or stop laughing. Uh, Have the, lots of laughter. Yeah. I, the the point is, like you said, you have to understand the context that when the problem with this kind of social fellowship is that when we fellowship, we are fellowshipping as though we are retreating from war into a hiding place. Mm-hmm rather than an activity of war itself. Yes, exactly. And the problem with that impoverished view of what a fellowship is and what it means is that, well, you lose the significance of laughing. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis said that basically fellowship doesn't mean that you don't laugh with each other. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you take each other morbidly seriously. But it's Even rather... though you and I do take each other morbidly seriously. <laughs> I hope you say that ironically. <laughs> oh, I do. Because you and I have some of the most gut-busting laughs ever as well. Yeah. And I think we're very aware that, that, we, that we are uh, waging war sometimes against ourselves yes indeed but that you know fellowship is not that we take each other morbidly seriously but but rather the best fun that you can have is after you began by taking each other seriously this is what lewis says in the weight of glory he he says that after lewis sets up this powerful image of how every person that we meet every person that we encounter in the course of our lives our neighbors our family members our fellow church members uh, they are going to be everlasting horrors mm. or everlasting splendors. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if you were to see them as they will be, you mm-hmm. would either be 
horrified beyond belief or tempted to bow down and worship them. Mm -hmm. After he says this, he talks about how we must take each other seriously because of that eternal reality. Right. And he says this does not mean that one jettisons laughter. Right. But he says that that kind of laughter, the good kind of laughter, the good kind of joy is Mm -hmm. only possible after one has taken the other person in the room seriously in light of their eternal destiny. Right. And that's such a great, by the way, reality to remember when you are dealing with someone who you cannot bring yourself to like very much someone who is maybe unpleasant or unsavory. Mm -hmm. If you think, if I could see this person in his or her glorified state, I would be tempted to worship them. Yes. Seeing that potential. And I think that's something that in itself, that is so necessary for any kind of unity or fellowship that we don't simply see each other as we are in our imperfect state right now, but Mm -hmm. we see the potential that we could become. And you know what's the perfect example of this? The catalyst for that kind of taking each other seriously Mm -hmm. in the Fellowship of the Ring is begun by Gandalf, Mm. who 60 years before, Gandalf looks at Bilbo Baggins and says, this guy would be fit stuff for an adventure. Mm -hmm. And he (laughs) ropes him into this entire conspiracy (laughs) in which Bilbo is originally an unwilling participant right and not to mention an unlikely one and then later gandalf looks at frodo and says this ring is your burden to bear Mm -hmm. gandalf took the hobbits far more seriously than the hobbits took themselves right and which is why you know over the course of the story when when Aragorn explains to Eomer, yeah, we're chasing two halflings. He says, what are halflings? <laughs> we thought they were the stuff of legends. Yeah. Um, Gandalf's approach to the hobbits sets the tone for the rest of the fellowship. Gandalf's willingness to look at what might be behind the curtain, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, the, the stuff that hobbits were actually made of, mm. was what elevated them to be able to to become major players in the in the war of the ring. Yeah. And you see the trickle down effect as how Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Boromir, they all looked at the hobbits differently because Gandalf said they are worthy of your attention. And I can't help but think about how this can change our approach to one another mm-hmm. if we are to take that same approach Mm. to take one another as potential everlasting splendors that we would be tempted to worship. Mm -hmm. This would change the way that we think about one another, the way that we speak to one another. It would further the process of raising one another up, Mm -hmm. uh, which is God's ultimate goal for us, Mm -hmm. is that we might be returned to our pre-fall state even better. Right. Well, there there are two things here that I think tells us something very profound about fellowship and the nature of fellowship. The first is that, and this is a, I would say, a beautiful intersection with our last discussion about courage. We had talked about courage being found in the smallest of people, despite mm-hmm. yes. one's apparent exactly. weakness, right? Exactly. We talked about how this courage cannot be mustered within oneself Mm -hmm. by one's own volition, by one's own will, that it has to come from an outside source, that it is something that is offered to you as a gift. 
if you seek it. And what is necessary is that you show up and try and courage can be given to you. In this case, what is necessary is fellowship. That someone to come alongside you and see in you the potential that you do not see yourself. Yes. Like iron sharpening iron mm -hmm. sharpens that potential into something that can be used in the fight. And that not only is the fight made possible, not only is the person who is who is seeing this p potential and acting on it benefited from the giftedness that, that you can offer, but the person itself is given new grace to see the wonders of who they are. Yes. And so one of the purposes of fellowship, as much as a benefit of fellowship, is that others come alongside you to see the potential that is in you that you come alongside others and mm -hmm. look at them as an everlasting soul. Yes. And to see the the seed of potential that is not going to be actualized tomorrow, but will be grown fully in eternity. Mm -hmm. And you can begin that process of being part in that growth so that, you know, when when you finally see them in eternity, fully glorified, not only can you see them in their glorified state, but you can you can say, I was given the opportunity to have some hand in this growth in mm -hmm. building this thing, this glorious thing that they are. Right. So it seems to me that fellowship cannot be purposeless. And again, as we've mentioned already, that it doesn't always have to be something that is manifestly productive in its workings out. In many cases, when you have someone over for dinner, or for a game night or something like that, that kind of fellowship isn't purposeless as long as you realize that in, in the process of bringing someone into your home and into your life and sharing a meal with them, you are working out uh, an image of the sacramental reality of the church. Mm -hmm. um, well, and I'll just clarify that. I mean, when you say it, it doesn't have to be productive, you're talking about a materialistic kind of productivity. Right. <laughs> you know, when you're laughing together or playing games, if you understand that the context of fellowship is one that is eternal, you are actually doing something very productive, which yes. is building that potential into a glorified thing. Exactly. And if we see that our, our times of fellowshipping together, I know you don't like the verb form of the word, but if we see those times as mirroring that which is to come, if we try to contextualize them as acts of war in their own right, if we attempt to add elements to our times with one another that recall what has been done for us mm -hmm. and what reality will be ours to live in in the kingdom to come, mm -hmm. then that is fellowship that has purpose, that has an end goal, even though it looks to the person who's you know poking their head in from the, the outside, mm -hmm. it looks like mere hang time. Um, but properly contextualized fellowship is literally anything but. You know, what that means is you have the understanding that what you are accomplishing is a sharpening of, of realities that are intangible. You know? Oh, that's good. Sharpening virtues in each other, sharpening the potential of each other. It seems to me, though, that uh, if one recognizes that fellowship must have an end or a purpose to it, that there are certain ways in which one might go about clarifying that purpose, clarifying the context. And so one thing that I would love to talk about with you is perhaps the, the presence of vows 
within certain kinds of fellowship. Mm-hmm. I know that one thing that's you know very present on my mind right now as a newly married man mm-hmm. is the fact that I vowed to love, honor, and cherish mm-hmm. uh, Sarah till the day that I die. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, I've told multiple people over the course of the last few months that I I loved her before I married her. Mm-hmm. But loving her out of the context of my vows in the last three months has been another thing entirely. Um, I almost don't recognize the love that I have for her now as compared to what it was in the summer before our wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, the vows change you. Yeah. Um, and, and vows that are rightly made uh, to another person are those which have the the best chance of of enduring mm. and so i'd love to talk about how the vowing of virtue the vowing of fidelity mm. can be a, a game changer in in how a fellowship between a man and a woman a congregant and their church mm-hmm. any number of examples a game changer in, in how how well that fellowship endures does making a man a knight make him a better fighter Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, there's a there's a great moment in the movie The Kingdom of Heaven, and this scene is actually it is worth more than the film itself. Yeah, I would agree. During the Crusades, there are a, a group of normal everyday peasants right. entrapped in Jerusalem, surrounded by enemy armies who have come to assail them and to and to besiege Jerusalem. And the main character is a knight. He is a knight by vocation. He is trained to be a knight. And he has taken the vows to be a knight. And he is told by one of his captains that there are not enough knights to fight. There are not enough soldiers to fight this war. And instead of giving up, he shouts to the crowds around, every man, every man, Mm -hmm. kneel and take these vows. And they kneel. And he shouts so that everyone can hear vows Mm -hmm. to virtue among them. I will speak the truth at all times, even if it means my death. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that being done, he says, every man rise a knight. Mm -hmm. And the captain who had been despairing before looks at him and says, I I mean, basically nothing's changed. They're still Mm -hmm. normal people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does making a man a knight make him a better fighter? And the answer is yes, yes. it does. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a real-world example of this in history. When the Knights Templar were leading an excursion across a mountainside, and they were ambushed by enemy armies. And in this caravan, the majority of the professional soldiers were, were cut off from this caravan of normal people, mm-hmm. normal men. And they they lost every battle mm. um, on this journey until essentially the Templars who were in the midst of the group took charge. And their first act of taking charge, taking over, was to make every man kneel and to no take way. a vow. I didn't know be, this. To be knights. And after that, they succeeded in crossing the mountain wow. and getting through this very treacherous enemy territory. And it was simply by virtue of making those vows that the men who would have otherwise despaired at the testing point had committed themselves, mm. body and soul, yes. to these high ideals of virtue. And that manifested 
in becoming better fighters mm-hmm. in a very practical way. Right. It's a poignant scene in the kingdom of heaven, but I, I didn't know about this historical example. Mm. I'll have something to tell my, my seventh grade boys about <laughs> this week now that you mention it. But the vows change you. The vows are necessary strictures, I think, to keep you from going your own way. The temptations to say farewell <laughs> when the road darkens mm-hmm. are, are more than any of us mm-hmm. have the strength to bear on our own. Um, in many cases, the vows that one makes, whether of fidelity to one's spouse, fidelity to the man in the trenches next to you, mm-hmm. vows of, of fidelity to be a, a faithful member of Christ's church, mm-hmm. um, these are what remind you at the testing point um, that endurance is uh, possible, but that endurance is also expected of you. And so they are reminders that, in some senses, the person who's on your left and on your right, they're counting on you to not break and run. Mm-hmm. My wife is counting on me to not break and run. That changes the entire perspective by which I might see a scenario. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm barely initiated <laughs> into the order of being a husband, <laughs> you know. But within the context of, of chivalry, we find uh, in, its, in its very best senses this same kind of culture that is bound together by vows and fellowship that is given context by the vows that each one has taken not only before God, but but in a sense before each other. We, on multiple occasions, have taken vows together mm-hmm. toward ideals of virtue. Yes. In a very ceremonious way. Mm-hmm. That is not something I broadcast <laughs> sure. publicly. Right. <laughs> Be- partly because the world would look on that as bizarre. Right. <laughs> suspect. Yeah. Partly because ceremony itself has all but vanquished from our culture. Yes. Every form of liturgy is more or less gone. Right. But we did that in the understanding that it does change you. Mm -hmm. That once you've vowed yourself to these ends of virtue, to these purposes of your vocation, you are not the same. Things are not the same. You cannot simply abandon your post any longer. You don't have the freedom to do that. Right. One of the reasons why the world would be so suspicious of taking a vow in a ceremonious way, like like we're talking about, becoming knights, part of it is the world would see it as role-playing. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we <laughs> have been very cautious about. Right. Not simply putting on a costume and, and play-acting, but... Right. Or collecting swords right. just because it's cool. Yeah. But also because... You know, our culture, our world sees virtue itself, ideals themselves, as unrealistic. Yes. As child's play, as fickle imagination. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, so long as these ideals only exist in legend, only exist in mythology, in The Lord of the Rings, or in The Knights of the Round Table, it deserves some skepticism. Right. Anybody who wishes to replicate is relegated to the standing of a cosplayer. Yes. Which, to be fair, <laughs> there are there are many who would look at, and maybe I'm going to step on some toes here, but one cannot just look at the Lord of the Rings and want to cosplay Aragorn. 
you know, mm-hmm. or cosplay one Legolas. One does not simply... Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You cannot imitate in fashion mm-hmm. or in accoutrement mm-hmm. without imitating in soul. Yeah. And yeah. I think what you and I at least are striving to do is to move away from from the imitation of mere coolness, the uh, the accoutrements of fantasy yeah. or yeah. of of this story, but... You know, to make a, a, a true-hearted effort towards imitating the souls of the characters in which we find in it, and in doing so, becoming greater-souled ourselves. Right. Well, I should I should say, at risk of a digression, that actually role-playing has a place, I, I would say, in, in childhood. Like, yes, very much. Because it's a very important part in a child's development that they put on the costume. Mm-hmm of their heroes and they go outside and they use their imagination to the best of their ability to step into the roles of these virtuous heroes and to play out with one foot in the world of their imagination Mm -hmm. and the other foot in the real world and to train themselves by their imagination, train themselves by role-playing the kinds of virtues that are necessary to face real battles later on. Yeah. But then when you become a man, you put away childish things. Right. right. And part of that is, as 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, the love that endures all things. And that endurance is, like you mentioned before, the the shield wall, the, the mm-hmm. wall of shields. That's what that word means, mm-hmm. enduring when you are on the front line. The, the skepticism of the world, the cynicism of the world, is not merely aimed at childish things. It's aimed at virtue itself yes. that would despise virtue even in children, mm-hmm. role-playing. Mm-hmm. And so it's no wonder when you get to a real-world example of men who have put away childish things walking in the in the manner in which they were raised not departing from from yes. it mm-hmm. approaching a real dragon understanding what it is taking up the courage that that has been trained in them locking arms with their brothers in fellowship motivated by these virtues what you just said justin reminds me of a, a lewis quote shocking probably but uh, he says since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies. Let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. And he is, in some senses, quoting Plato, which, Mm -hmm. uh, as someone has said, all of history and philosophy is but a footnote to Plato's Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in the middle of reading the Republic right now, and uh, Plato makes this, well, Socrates in this case, makes this long discussion of how the children of the guardian class are to be educated. Um, and he talks about how they must be given story after story after story and and music mm-hmm. that appeals to the highest ideals of humanity, mm-hmm. um, that is exemplary of humankind at its best. Mm-hmm. Um, this is some of the same thing that we're talking about with the idea of role-playing. One must play the role before you understand why it's important. Right. Um, and so that the child who may have taken up a plastic sword <laughs> in their in their early years uh, might understand the purpose of the Word of God mm-hmm. in their later years. Mm-hmm. So that said, uh, I can completely understand that an ambition after virtue would be seen by the world as suspect and would be associated by the world with a kind of childish role play. Right. It makes complete sense. But I, I want to bring up a, 
another real world example as much as i know you're hesitant to talk about this because <laughs> of your humility to a fault which is also in the context of vow making um because this occurred the week of your wedding the night before at your bachelor party which i i think the 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 term bachelor party right. belies the whole evening. right it does it does i'll give you that i'd like to hear you talk as much as you might hesitate to do so <laughs> about what happened that mm. night and why it was such a blow to the side of the head, I think, right. for, for both of us and probably for the others. It was one of the most profound examples of fellowship to the highest ideals of virtue that we've talked about that I've maybe ever experienced. Mm. Well, at the risk of sounding somewhat self-serving, <laughs> um, I can unequivocally say that when I look back on, on the high points of my life, that night will be in the irrevocable top three or five. Mm -hmm. um, and it was special uh, for a number of reasons. One, because there were men there from every walk of my life, uh, every season of my life, from uh, childhood friends like you and others, um, to those uh, who I've only known through church or through work for the last couple of years. It was, in many senses, a picture of the feast to come, mm -hmm. um, where there was much laughter um, and yet much serious talk as well. It was an evening that in some senses never seemed to end and in the very best way. Mm -hmm. And I was just immensely privileged to, to see how many dear, dear friends uh, of mine were able to, to come. And there were, you know, a dozen, two dozen others that who were, who were not able to come. Mm -hmm. uh, but to sit there, you know, in that very large circle on that patio with 25 of the men who I love and respect mm -hmm. most in the world, um, and to rem reminisce on our friendships uh, their highs and their lows, um, was uh, an incredible privilege and not something that I, I will ever forget. So something that Stephen will probably not talk about is the fact that at this alleged bachelor's party, <laughs> 25 men showed up. 25 men who were not just acquaintances, but close brothers to you. And basically the entire evening we sat in a circle, the 25 of us. Um, it was a literal Knights of the Round table. <laughs> and for probably three or four hours, each man took his turn, in fact, took multiple turns mm. in talking about um, memories of Stephen, but also the significant role he had played in their life. It was almost like for every person in that circle, you were top three or five most important people in their lives. And the fact that there were 25 of them and dozens of others who couldn't come was a testament to your commitment to brotherhood and to vowing yourself to, to these ideals of virtue. It was, I mean, I was bowled over by mm, it. You weren't the only one. <laughs> but also one of the things that became very apparent very quickly was that there was a reality that was far beyond you there, mm -hmm. which was... The reality of fellowship as it ought to be yes and of brotherhood as it ought to be and i i think in many senses one of the reasons why we all felt i mean i didn't know half of the people there mm -hmm. 
but I, I, I think I can speak for all of them to say that we all felt a sense of absolute unity with each other. Mm-hmm. And yes. it was it was unity in part because of our association with you and the, the brotherhood that we sh- that we shared by virtue of that. But also, I think each of us have forged our brotherhood with you in the midst of some real trials, mm-hmm. real battles. And that was the binding principle mm-hmm. for the brotherhood that was there. And that was something that everybody referenced. Being in the trenches together, we were all brothers in arms together because we were all brothers in arms individually with you. And one of, one of the things that was probably said the most was that they would be willing to run through a brick wall with you, to charge into battle knowing death is imminent with you because they know that you would do the same. And mm-hmm. that everybody there, there, there is no one we would rather have in our trench. And I think because of that, you know, the same for everybody there with each other mm-hmm. that we could count on each other for mm-hmm. their brotherhood all of that cuts both ways right brotherhood is not a one-way street <laughs> and what was so profoundly encouraging and humbling for me sitting in that circle was was realizing just how many men that i've had the chance to share the trenches with mm-hmm. and how many men have had my back at my lowest moments and, and what I took away from that night was, yes, much of this evening was focused on the past and what has been true of our relationships with one another, mm-hmm. but a, a sense of, of renewed brotherhood, of renewed fellowship mm-hmm. between me and my friends going into the new season of marriage for me. And, you know, as you know, these months have not been easy months. No. I have needed to rely on you all to to remind me <laughs> of mm-hmm. of who it is that I vowed to be. Yep. Um, I have needed you all to rejoice with me over the, the joy of, of calling Sarah my wife. And so I think that was part of the, the timelessness of the evening itself was mm-hmm. that it was both backward and forward looking mm-hmm. um, in a in a present reality, but it was, it was made so by men who had taken each other seriously, Mm -hmm. um, and who were dedicated to continuing to take one another seriously. Um, I'll never forget it. And it remains wind beneath my wings (laughs) to think of the fellowship that was, was commemorated and renewed Mm -hmm. on that night. And if I can say, I mean, part of that brotherhood exists to be accountability for you we will keep you in check thank god (laughs) we we will hold you to your word lord knows i need it (laughs) to the promises that you made the next day Mm -hmm. even if that means opposing you to your face if it comes down to please do we uh that is a vow that we make to you Mm -hmm. and that is also something that would would be seen as suspect and bizarre right by our world and our culture. True fellowship is that which speaks the truth, even if it leads to you getting slapped in the face. (laughs) And the value of truth-telling cannot be um, extricated from the equation. Mm -hmm. One must tell the truth, the good and the ugly. Well, I I mean, I can absolutely say that if, if it came down to it, if I was abandoning my post, if I was abandoning my vows, whether that would be in a context of brotherhood, of vocation, or of marriage, I hope to God that my brothers would tie me down to a chair mm-hmm. <laughs> or beat me to a bloody pole. Right. 
in a very literal sense yeah to keep me in line um and going back to hebrews 12 you know enduring for the purpose of discipline yes that christ uh, endured for the joy set before him and paul making the assumption that it's paul <laughs> right <laughs> then says you must endure but you have not yet resisted evil you have not yet resisted your sense to the point, point of, of shedding, shedding your blood. blood. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes that means, and probably most often that means, not mm-hmm. self asceticism and, and, and self-destruction. It means the brothers alongside you to keep you accountable. Right. Well, in many cases, asceticism, which I think has great merits, mm-hmm. is best undertaken alongside others um, not all of us have the fortitude to be a desert father <laughs> out on it on his own on the top of a pillar mm. but this is this is the role of the church mm. that we might undertake even our disciplines together mm-hmm. and it is a kindness of God that he should give uh, his presence to us in the form of his children. Mm-hmm. He knows that it is not good for man to be alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, a true statement outside of the context of, of mere marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not good a, for a very us. very Lewis sense of the word. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. It is not good for us to be left to our own devices. Because mm-hmm. left to our own devices, we will, we will go down the rabbit hole of nihilism, of chronic wasting of our time. Mm-hmm. We will go down the rabbit hole of despair. And so in his kindness, God has given to us one another. He has given to us fellowship that will endure. Um, he says that those who participate in the reality of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mm-hmm. And we can take that to the bank, mm-hmm. even in our hours of, of greatest despair. And so we are the constant reminders of God to one another. Mm-hmm. We are constant reminders of the eternal reality in which we live, if we will but take each other seriously. Mm-hmm. And laugh just as seriously. And laugh just as seriously. Part of the the entire idea that motivated this podcast um, as the Notion Club is that it is a fellowship of minds. It's not merely a, a series of discussions. Understanding that, as we've discussed in episodes of season one, that fellowship has its origin in God the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that, you know, fellowship is not something that he created it is something that is him yes that he is fellowship yes within the persons of the trinity and that this is so necessary not as a bonus you know eve was not a bonus no to an already good creation the creation of adam as solitary was not it was good in, it was incomplete. it was not good yes eden was not paradise until eve completed adam mm-hmm. because reality is not complete if fellowship isn't a part of it Mm, because excellent. God is not God without fellowship. No um, man is an island. <laughs> mm-hmm. The the phrase Notion Club comes from Tolkien, his Notion Club papers, which mm. was a kind of a fictional tribute to the Inklings. And fellowship is not just an important theme in The Lord of the Rings. It is probably the most important thing to Tolkien himself. Yes. It was the central thing in his life. His great desire for fellowship was born in his early days when 
both of his parents had died and he was an orphan in the custody of of a priest living a very lonely existence until he found companionship in the tea club and the barovian society mm-hmm. his three friends several of whom died in the first world war in fact at the end of the first world war all but one of his friends had died and tolkien once said that he has had the sense all his life that his friendships his fellowship were were leaves that were constantly falling from the tree mm, man, and, and an he, he said that in the context that was in 1963 mm-hmm. and that was when lewis had mm-hmm. died mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's, he said, I've had the sense that all my life, these leaves were constantly falling from the tree, but this, Lewis's death, has felt like an axe taken to the roots. Wow. Man. It was the very reason he wrote everything he wrote. And that is because he recognized, maybe better than anyone else, just how necessary fellowship is to everything that is good. It isn't a bonus. Mm-hmm. It is the the thing in which everything that is true, everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, every virtue of the highest ideal can only be expressed when it finds its abiding place in fellowship. Well, continuing all good traditions, I think it's time to say that there's so much more we could discuss <laughs> about, about fellowship. And I'm glad for one that this fellowship is far from over. Amen. So I look forward to the next discussion. There will be many on our own before we ever share them publicly, (laughs) I'm glad to say. But thank you for joining in this new season of Notion Club. Thank you for your brotherhood in these new seasons of our lives. Thank you, my friend.